It's often that something in one of the songs hits me and I find to be worth sharing. And, and there was something in every song that we sung this morning that I thought that just hit me uniquely. And so bear with me for a moment if, if uh, you would while I just kind of maybe speak to some of what we sang. We, we started out by singing that there is joy in the house of the Lord. I just saw Steve and Char Van Slyke sitting in the room. Welcome back. It's good to see you guys. I'm excited you're here. Uh, But the house of the Lord is in the New Testament uniquely not a place, but a people. It is not a building or a location, but it is the people. And there is a sense in which Paul refers to us as as individuals, as the temple of the Holy Spirit. But Peter reminds us that as individuals, we are being built up as stones into a temple. And so there there is the unique and wonderful reality that God is in and with his people individually, but that God meets uniquely and specially with his people when they are gathered. And the house of the Lord in the New Testament In the Old Testament, it is a place, it is a location, it is the temple. In the New Testament, it is always the people of God gathered together. And so we come not in the house of the Lord. I never never pray about us being gathered in the house of the Lord, but that we are gathered as the house of the Lord. And then the next song we sang just reminded me of, um, I've I've long used this... um, collection of Puritan prayers, it's available for sale out here, uh, called the Valley of Vision. And one of, uh, one of the prayers in it uh, is a prayer, uh, I don't even know who the author of it is because they're not listed. We're just told who is generally contributing to this thing. Uh, the, the prayer prays that our, our homes may be nurseries for heaven. And I've often prayed that prayer, that our homes would be nurseries uh, for heaven. And, and so it's just wonderful to sing together that God's grace and goodness might be known from generation to generation. And then we sang these words, The Lord has promised good to me. His word my hope secures. And I just love that line because it it is only in God who is absolutely truthful and who is absolutely powerful, whose word is as certain as the actual receiving of the thing promised. And and when God's word says something is secure, it is secure. Period. There is no ifs, ands, or buts about that. And finally, we sang of the goodness of God running after us. And I think uh, goodness is hard to define as an attribute of God. But, But I would say the goodness of God is the character of God expressed towards the people of God. There is a unique outward flow of who God is to his people that we call his goodness. And it's not just that he is good in himself, but that he is good to us. And when we speak of the goodness of God, it is that his good pursues us. Thank you for indulging with me in in those things. But what we sing matters, and I I hope you think uh, seriously upon what we sing as we sing, because it is the response. It's not just pure emotion that is is worship. Worship 
is, is our response to the truth of who God is. And when we think about who he is and what he has done and respond in joy, that is worship. I want to encourage you next week to, uh, to, to be present with us for our missions fair. The information is in your worship folder. On Friday evening and Saturday evening, our missionaries will, uh, will share with us what's going on. And it's a unique opportunity to bless them, but it's a unique opportunity for us to be blessed by them. I would highly encourage you to, to bring your children. You will not be sorry when you see the, the, the delight and the desire that our missionaries have in interacting with your children. And, and uh, I can't speak to the importance of that because it's, it's at those young ages that, that a concern for the lost, especially globally, begins to arise. And, and I, uh, I really, really look forward to that time next weekend, and I hope you will be here with us. Let me now read to you our text for the day, and that is Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people put a light Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I think if it were not for this passage here, uh, we, we might be prone, having heard the Beatitudes, to be a bit hopeless. Upon initial investigation, the Sermon on the Mount might just be, might appear to be a series of disconnected um, thoughts from Jesus, just random thoughts with Jesus. But it is not that at all. It is uniquely connected. And Jesus, as we've looked at for four weeks now, as he's, um, he's shown us how to seek happiness in the kingdom, the picture is not often what we would expect. In Jesus' kingdom, the citizens are spiritually bankrupt mourners who are merciful and who make peace, who give love and truth in a world full of hatred and lies. And it would be easy if we just stopped at verse 12 or verse, uh, yes, verse 12 and moved along, especially considering the persecution that is promised for those who follow Jesus. And we say, what good can we do with this? What what difference can we make in a world where, where our weapons are merely a hunger for righteousness and pure hearts? Especially considering that we're a minority in the world. These are not weapons of warfare. How are we supposed to make a difference? Well, Jesus apparently did not share this kind of skepticism. Instead, after telling us what kingdom citizens are like, he tells us how to make a difference in the world. And he does so by using two household metaphors, salt and light. No doubt he would have seen growing up often his mom use both both salt in terms of cooking and lighting lamps to light the house. About the same time Jesus is alive and the New Testament is being written, a Roman named Pliny, often called Pliny the Elder, made this statement. He said, nothing is more useful than salt and a little sunshine. 
These are well-known images in that day, and they were important metaphors. And for us here in this passage, salt and light are two parallel metaphors. In both of these, Jesus gives an affirmation followed by a rider, an affirmation followed by a condition that must be met. And so he states truth and then gives the condition. You are salty as long as you don't lose your saltiness. And you are light as long as you don't hide that light. Before we look at at some implications of these, let's understand the two metaphors. There are many, uh, maybe far-stretching images given in sermons for salt. Some people would say, well, salt is white, and so that speaks to the purity. I've heard people say, tears are salty, and so we're mourners. I've heard people say, well, when you put salt in a wound, it stings, and we should be a little painful to people around us. And as I read this text, and as I understand the history in which it's giving, none of these seem to add up. There seems to be maybe two Two, two references that Jesus is, or, or two realities that Jesus is connecting salt to. Number one, salt was valuable. There was not refineries in, in that day. And so salt could just be dug up or collected and sometimes was pure, sometimes impure. If you were to go to the Dead Sea and collect salt, sometimes you would get what was maybe mostly salt, but sometimes you might dig up another white substance that was not primarily salt. It would have no doubt been called salt still without laboratories to be able to examine it, and it would have been considered to be unsalty salt. It was useless salt. It did not not work. But salt, because of the reality of how difficult it was to get, was valuable and often polluted with other minerals. But it was valuable for two reasons. Number one, and both reasons maybe like today, is it was used as a seasoning. It was used in food to make it taste better, as we often do with salt. And secondly, like today, it was used as a preservative. Without refrigeration, meat could not be kept without having some kind of preservative added to it. And so modern day examples are are common from biltong to beef jerky. If you take some meat and you rub coarse salt into that meat, there is a preserving effect and you can keep that meat around for a long time without, uh, without refrigeration. But salt, uh, because of these uses, was valuable. In fact, Roman soldiers were often paid for, they, they were paid their salary in salt, which is where the saying arose from uh, that somebody is worth their salt. They are either worth or not worth the wages that they receive. And so uh, salt was valuable and it was useful. Light is also a simple reference for us to understand. In fact, the, the light that Jesus refers to here would have been small oil lamps that would have been lit in a house. Now, without electricity, as we have, imagine in a power outage, uh, the power goes out at your house, and the only means of illumination you have is a couple of candles. You would be foolish to light those candles and then take a metal bucket and put it over the candle. That's, that's not the point. You might light the candle in that situation and then set it up on something for it to give light in the whole house. These are the common images that that Jesus is drawing out for us. 
And there is, before we can consider the implications for us of these two remarkably simple metaphors, a couple of presuppositions that Jesus makes. And the first is decay. Jesus presumes, as he gives us these metaphors, that like meat, the world is prone to decay. The world is not an improving place. We go from the garden uh, and, and sin to the flood to Sodom and Gomorrah to Romans 1. And we see that the world, apart from Christ, apart from God's intervention, apart from his work amongst his people, is a place that is undergoing decay. It is a dark place that is void of light. Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9 says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? My kids grew up watching Disney movies the same as anybody else. But parents, be very, very careful with your children and the message to follow your heart. Because our hearts are desperately sick and deceitful Above all things, they don't lead us to good places apart from the intervening work of the Spirit of God and the Word of God to reorient our hearts. And 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 12 through 13 expressly tells us that things are in a condition of decay. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. This was the last of the Beatitudes, that we would be persecuted. Verse 13, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Sin is always at work to destroy. I mean, even science confirms this. The second law of thermodynamics teaches us that systems always become more disordered, not more ordered. I'm not sure how science reconciles evolution with the second law of thermodynamics, but that's probably a discussion for another time. We can't understand what Jesus is saying here if we don't understand that sin is always decaying the human condition. And something outside of of us is needed to be brought in to stop and to slow that decay. And the second presupposition that Jesus gives in these verses is the distinct communities of the church and of the world. In both of these passages, when they open with the condition, you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world, the you is placed in what we call the emphatic position. Jesus is emphasizing the you. In fact, it's almost like he's saying, you and you alone are the salt of the earth. You and you alone are the light of the world. It is not any unbeliever who can be the salt of the earth. It is not any unbeliever who can be the light of the world. In fact, I think the imagery that's being drawn on for us here, uh, coming out of Isaiah, is distinctly the, the, the prophecy that Jesus, that the Messiah, would be the light of the world. 
And John is very clear, and Jesus himself says there that he is the light of the world. The imagery that comes to mind for me here is a, a bit of the moon. The moon is, is not, does not have any illumination of its own, but it reflects the light of the sun into the darkness of night. And so we, as believers, like the moon, are called to reflect the light of the sun into a dark world. But these two communities are distinct. There is the world or the earth, as Jesus uses two different terms here, and then there's you. There is that community, the community of the world, and this community, the community of the church. They are, as Don Carson points out so well, connected communities. But their connectedness depends upon their distinctness. Jesus is very specifically telling us that there is a difference between the community of you who follow him and the community of the earth or the world. And so we must, in order to understand these passages properly, understand that first the world or the earth is in a state of darkness and decay. It is not in a state of improvement. It is in a state of darkness and death and destruction. And that is what sin always brings. And secondly, that there is to be a distinctness between the church and the world. With that understanding, let's look at five realities of the believer's presence in the world from these passages. And your outline is a typo on my part that says four realities, just scratch out four and put five. I apparently can't count very well. So, number one, the believer's presence in the world is to be a valuable presence. The believer's presence in the world is to be a valuable presence. We've already seen that salt was a valuable substance, and, and again, that Roman soldiers would be paid in salt. One thing we will see over and over in this passage uh, as we come to the end of it is that we are to let our good works shine to be seen by others so that they will glorify God. In other words, we are to have a valuable presence in the world. Things like filling food bags for students who are hungry. It's not gospel witness but it's a valuable presence. And by the way, we need help here. School started back up, and, uh, and we're starting to, the school's already reached out to us and said, hey, we need help uh, sending food home with, with students again this year. And, and we need additional help, now that our, our office staff is smaller, in being willing to, to come and take inventory on things and let us know what's needed and pack bags and get them to school to the school. And so if you're willing to help out with that, would you put that on your blue card today? We, we need help there. Uh, again, maybe um, the, the turkey trot, which was done at Blue Ridge, is not gospel witness, but it's a valuable presence. We're, we're being asked to consider doing that again. And we need help if we're going to be able to do that, if we're going to be able to, to help meet those needs, especially as we're just now, this week, in fact, being asked if we would consider uh, doing that again, and it's only a month away. 
So if you're willing to help with that, put that on your blue card as well. These things aren't necessarily gospel witness. The the surest way to be removed from our influence in the school is to demand that we have gospel witness in the school. They'll just tell us we can't come. We're going to have to work in schools if we're going to work in schools inside the boundaries that are permitted. I had a guy come into my office this week and say, I work for uh, uh, an organization called, I think it's The Forge. I've got to look at the paperwork. He said, we connect with schools. We're connecting with the school district in your area and other organizations to, uh, to connect kids who need mentors to mentors, but we only recruit from the church. Do you have anybody who would be a willing mentor? I said, I don't know. But that's interesting. The school district might be willing to hand us kids and say, this kid needs somebody to influence them. Would you be that person? They may not be immediately gospel witness things, but they are value-giving things. They bring value to the world from the church. This this is essentially asking the question of us all. If God removed Trinity from the world today, if all of us were gone, would we be missed? Do we have a valuable presence in the community as, as individuals and as an organization? I'm not saying that we don't or that we do. I'm simply asking the question, do we have a valuable presence in the world. Secondly, we see that Jesus is teaching us that not only is the people of God to be a valuable presence in the world, but that that it is to be a preserving presence in the world. And this is really the point of the salt metaphor. The world, as we have seen, is decaying, and the church is to be an agent to slow that decay. And I would charge us with the reality that the church has never been more important in that role than now. Because scripture would teach us that there are four restraints to sin in the world. Four restraints to sin. The first is conscience. From Romans 2, 1 Corinthians 8 and 10, 2 Corinthians, 1 and 2 Timothy, Titus, Hebrews 1, all speak of the conscience. And the conscience in our world, is vanishing. The the consciences of people are not seared in the way that they once were. And to quote Paul in Romans 1, we are suppressing that truth with sin. The second... The second restraint against sin given in the world is government. In Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2, clearly government is given to to punish sinners. And yet more and more we're seeing that our government is less, and not just ours, but across the globe, governments are becoming less and less inclined to punish sin. Thirdly, And this is part of the reason why we're stepping out to make a difference in the way that we are, is the family. So first, the conscience is a restraint against sin. Second, the government is to be a restraint against sin. And thirdly, the family is to be a restraint against sin. But we're seeing the decay of the family. 
Not only in terms of, of, of nuclear families staying together, our kids report to us frequently that they're like one of the only people in their peer groups who have parents that are still married. The, the, the family is decaying. Jails, the statistics are clear that they are filled with people whose, whose fathers had no influence in their lives. Fifteen years ago, I read an article in the Atlantic magazine about how the army is having to rethink how to do basic training because they're trying to train up, to quote a colonel, a generation of people who have never been told no by anyone and meant it. The family is no longer restraining sin. And this is not a good thing. Proverbs 19 verse 18 says this, Discipline your son. For there is hope. Do not set your heart on putting him to death. Do you realize that to fail to discipline your children is the same as murder? Just with eternal consequences? The family is to be a restraint against sin. And even in the church, we have bought into worldly ideas of discipline. And then finally is the church. The church is to be a restraint against sin in the world. Not institutionally. We must do everything we can to to remove the idea of an organization or a location when the word church comes to mind. The word church in the New Testament simply means assembly. It is the people of God individually and corporately, who are to be a restraining force against sin in the world. Not by political activism. I'm not saying we shouldn't be good citizens. I'm simply saying that that when the church surrenders its witness to politics, it takes a step down. As individuals, we should certainly be good citizens. We should certainly vote. We should certainly fight for righteousness. But as a church, we restrain sin in the world by fighting our own sin, by fighting our children's sin, by standing up for what is right. I saw a social experiment uh, the other day, uh, this video, where where, uh, it was actually a a couple uh, who had a kid and she was in the elevator, and, and people in the elevator had no idea that, that they knew each other, but he kept touching her and, and smelling her hair, and she would say, stop. The vast majority of people who stepped into the elevator got off as quickly as they could, rather than stepping in and doing what was right and restraining sin. We're quick to just step out, to not have conflict. Maybe even as we see the Beatitudes, to not bring peace into a situation. Our greatest stand against sin in the world, our greatest preserving work will be done not when we try and legislate the righteousness of the world, but when we take our own sin seriously and fight against it. The church is to be a preserving presence in the world. Thirdly, 
And we continue to see this in verse 13, that, that we are the salt of the earth, we are this valuable and preserving presence, but we are to be, thirdly, a pure presence. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. The, the, the church's greatest witness is its own purity. Again, this, this unsalty salt was not salt that lost its saltiness. If you know anything about chemistry, that's about impossible. Sodium chloride is an incredibly strong structure. Salt does not become unsalty. Unsalty salt in that day is salt that is so impure that the salt has been washed out by everything else. And so if you acquired a white substance, maybe taken from the Dead Sea or some other location, and it was not salty, it had no value. It had no value in, in, in terms of, of seasoning food. It had no value in terms of being a preserving presence. And it certainly had no value in terms of selling it. So what was done with it is it was distributed either in the street or on the roof of a house. Either was a place where people walked. And so the only thing unsalty salt is good for is to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Our greatest witness is not becoming the purity police in the world. It comes by making sure that we are pure in the church. And if we're not willing to do that, if we're not willing to take on our own saltiness, if we're not willing to deal with sin in our own lives, to lovingly correct others when they are sin, to kindly, as a church, discipline those who will refuse to repent of sin, we will lose our witness in the world. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great British preacher, said the glory of the gospel is that when the church is absolutely different from the world, she inevitably attracts it. It is then that the world is made to listen to her message, though it may hate her at first. In the last 20 years especially, the church has begun to believe the lie that we will be attractive to the world by becoming like the world. The world does not need more world. The world needs more church. And not in terms of just showing up here, but in going out and living salty, pure lives. By doing what's right. And though the world may hate us at first for it, it is that saltiness that leads people to listening to the message. The world does not need the church to become like the world. We don't need to lose the distinctness of the world or the earth and the you. Yes, the church must be connected to the world. It is our, it is our connectedness and our distinctness that preserves our testimony. Fourthly, and this probably really should say on your outline 14 through 16a, it is to be a visible presence, like a city set on a hill that could not be hidden. Interestingly, as Jesus uses this metaphor, a city on a hill couldn't be hidden during the day or during the night. 
The most commonly used uh, substance to build cities at this time is limestone, which would be bright, uh, a bright white city on top of a hill during the day or uh, at night when you would light lamps could be easily seen. Lights weren't hidden, quite the opposite. They were put on a lampstand to give off light in the house so that people could see in the darkness. And the church's testimony is not to be hidden under a lamp. It is to be or under a, a, uh, a basket, a bucket, if you will, but it is to be open and visible. Again, I'm not talking about the institutional church. But there is danger of this room becoming a bucket from which we hide our light. And the reality is that we're not to let our good works only be seen amongst these people. If all of our good works, if all of our life, if all of our friendships, if all of our our relational connections, if all of our service is done inside the church, that is effectively taking your good works and putting them under a bushel. Because it is everyone in the house who is to see the light. It is to, to, to be a light that shines before all men that they may see your good works. Some translations say that, that, that you're, you're, uh, in the same way, let your light shine before all all men. The ESV says others. All isn't there. It's just, it's just the, the Greek words men or the men, which is a reference clearly to everybody, which is why some translations say all men. This is to be a witness that is to be seen by everyone. You and I in Ephesians 2.10 are tasked with living out the good works that God has prepared for us that we would live in them. God has, uh, from eternity past, decreed that we would be a redeemed people and has not only decreed that we would be redeemed, but has, has assigned the good works that we are to walk in. And Jesus here is telling us that those good works are to be publicly visible. What are the good works in mind here? Everything you do. Everything you do. Why? Not so that we may be seen, but so that God may be seen. It is to be a visible presence. It is to show the world what a redeemed people look like. It is to shine the light of Christ into a dark world. And while it is a, while it is a valuable presence as we consider salt, it is a light-giving presence in terms of evangelism. For so long... For so long, the church has set these two things apart. You have the socially driven church that is like, we just, we just want to do good things in the world. And we don't have to use words to share the gospel. We're just going to do good things and then people will ask us. And Jesus is saying, be salt, be valuable, be a preservative, do good things in the world. And then you have the church that says, we're not going to do good things in the world. That's a waste of time. We're just going to tell people about Jesus. And that's light. And I cannot figure out for the life of me why we're setting these two things apart as, as either only doing one or the other. 
We are not called in this passage to be salt or light, but to be salt and light. We are to make a valuable, preserving presence in the world and then tell people that we're all sinners, that the ship is going down, that it's a dark and decaying place, but Jesus, the light of the world, has come into it, God himself to rescue sinners by dying in their place and being resurrected again, offering all who would believe in him new life. And I think any church that says we're going to do one or the other, but not both, is in need of repentance. Because we are salt and light. The danger here, I think, comes on the salty end. Because it's it's instantly gratifying to be salty. To, To serve food at the Christian Aid Center. to to bring food bags to prospect point, to pay the rent or the bills of, of people who are struggling. There's immediate gratification in those things. But the light side often takes decades of telling people what Jesus has done and praying and begging God to change their heart. And it's easy to to slip into the instant gratification of saltiness than the long obedience in the same direction of light. But we must be salt and light. Why? Why must we have a visible presence? So that by seeing us, people might see our Father in heaven so that they might see him and glorify him. It's very, very easy to say, well, I'm I'm not supposed to do my good works to be seen. Therefore, I'm going to hide them. It's a right premise, a wrong conclusion. Because Jesus is clearly going to teach us here very shortly that we should not do our good works to be seen by people. But here he's telling us, that our good works should be public so that people might see God. The problem is not doing works that are visible. The problem is doing works so that people see us rather than seeing our Father. And back to the analogy of the moon, you cannot see the light of the sun in the dark of night without seeing the moon. But it is not the moon that illuminates the night. It is the sun. And it is not the church that illuminates the dark. It is the sun. But the sun has chosen to illuminate the dark in his absence through the purifying and illuminating presence of his people in the world who must be seen. That our Father might be seen. This is what this campaign for 500 in 5 is all about. There are so many pieces here that we could put together. We want to preserve families for the good of the family, for the good of society, for the good of the church, for the good of our children. But we want to be hospitable in that endeavor so that our light might be seen. 
Nobody lights a lamp in their house and covers it, but lets it be seen that all in the house may benefit from the light. Hospitality is simply an invitation to those who live in the darkness to come into your house and see the light. That's what hospitality is. That's why hospitality is presented to us throughout the New Testament as evangelism. We open our homes, we open our lives so that people might see the illuminating and salty presence of Christ in the world through us. It is our visible presence and testimony in the world. And fifthly and finally, it is to be a glorifying presence. Notice that the point of all of this, as Jesus drives these two metaphors home in verse 16, in the same way as as light is set up or a, a lamp is set up so that it might be seen, Let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The point of all of this is so that others may glorify God. Why does evangelism and missions exist? It is so that worship will exist. The point of evangelism is not simply to keep people out of hell. That's a good motivator. That is definitely a part of it. I'm not criticizing that at all. But I'm asking us to add to that the motivating factor of missions and evangelism as worship. Do you believe that God is worthy of of worship. Enough to invite somebody else to be a worshiper too. That's the point. That God is worthy of honor and glory. He has not left us in the dark. He has not left us to decay. He has sent His Son to be our righteousness and to die in our place. And for all of these things and so much more, he is worthy of worship. Enough, worthy enough to invite others to be worshipers too. To tell other people what he has done and to invite them into the chorus of worshipers. In closing, there really is just two big questions for us to ask. First, what kingdom do your works display? kingdom do your works display? Are you pursuing your treasure on earth or in heaven? Are you pursuing what will be left to another generation or what will have an impact for eternity? There are only three eternal things that exist. God, His Word, and people. Every other endeavor is a failing pursuit. It is a pursuit that will decay, that will become subject to the second law of thermodynamics. Now, do we have to give up every other pursuit and just become monks, modern-day ascetics, 
No, because that would be hiding our light. We redeem all of those things by doing them for the glory of God. We work for the glory of God. We recreate for the glory of God. We love and lead our families for the glory of God. We do all things that others, our spouses, our children, and unbelievers might see God and glorify Him. We simply redeem those works. If everything I do is my works, do people see a difference? Do do they look at me and see God's economy or the world's economy? Maybe the question before some of us in trying to figure out what kingdom our works display is, do I really even know the difference? Maybe the first step is just getting in God's word more to know the difference between worldly pursuits and divine pursuits. You will be most effective for the kingdom when you are most salty, most pure, most distinct. So the first big question is, what kingdom does my life put on display? And secondly, is who gets to see my good works? Are they all reserved for the church? I really think that Christians globally maybe it's a uniquely American perspective, I don't know, would do well to, uh, to divide up our works a little more. If all of your good works are in the world, you need to do a little service in the church too. And if all of your service is in the church, you need to knock that off and do less here and get out into the world. All of our lives should be a balance between seeking to glorify God in the church and in the world. Do you hide your light under the basket of the church? Are your good works only visible in your home and in the church? There is a simple remedy to this. Invite somebody in your home to see them there. This is, again, what 505 is all about. We want to impact 500 families in five years through the power of one. What's the power of one? Every family in Trinity investing in one family at least once a month for one year. Just letting people in your homes so that they can see your light shine. Because we are told to let our light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Lord, that is our aim, that is our goal, that is our desire. That you would be glorified. You are worthy of glory. You are worthy of honor. You are worthy of praise. And not just by those who already know you, but those who don't know you yet. May we be willing to be both a valuable and preserving presence in the world and a light-bearing presence in the world. May we see and understand that you are glorious enough, not just for the praise of the church, but that all creation might be invited to join the chorus of those who, who praise you. Let us never be discouraged or defeated by the fact that we are armed with purity of heart and peacemaking skills. 
and a desire for righteousness. But may we see that those are exactly the greatest weapons that you have given us. That when we live as kingdom saints, not just in the church, but in the world, that we will be salt and light. That it is, it is distinctly the Beatitudes lived out that make us a salty and light-filled people. Lord, I must confess, it, it is completely and totally counterintuitive, but your word has said it, and so we can know it is sure. And your word has secured our hope. Not only our hope for, for eternity, but our hope for success in this life as well, in terms of evangelism in terms of righteousness. Make us a righteous, pure, salty, evangelistic, loving, serving people that people might see you and give you glory. And that is the end and aim of it all, and we ask it for that end in Jesus' name. Amen.